You're listening to the English Ministry Podcast of Chinese Christian Church Thousand Oaks. Join us every Sunday at 11 a.m. Find out more at english.cccto.org. Pray before we start. Father, we thank you for this time that we can gather together as a church to worship you. We glorify you. We praise your name. We want to learn more about you so that we can glorify you more and live out the life that you want us to live here on this earth before we see you in glory. Lord, we ask, Father, that you would reveal yourself to us through the story as we go through the exodus, the deliverance of how you delivered your people from slavery. And Father, we pray that you would guide us to grow deeper in you. All of the things that we have gone through this past week, whether good or bad, help us to find ourselves in you and related to this story that we're going through, even at this time uh, of the exodus from Egypt. Lord, we do pray, Father, for us, whatever we're going through, we ask that you would provide for our needs. We ask that you would bless us and help us to see you in it. Father, for those of us who are going through a hard time with job searching, we haven't found a job yet, we pray that you would be the provider for them. We pray that all of us can say Like the Old Testament heroes of old, Jehovah Jireh, that you are our God who provides. We pray that uh, you would heal us from our infirmities. Whatever sickness we're going through, we ask, Lord, that you would alleviate us from those sicknesses. Whether they are uh, down to the common cold all the way to things that are of much serious nature. We lift up uh, Kenneth Chang. Uh, Jamie and Christine's uh, father, we ask, Father, that you would save him from the cancer that he is going through, from the treatments, Lord, that are uh, being taken place uh, at City of Hope Hospital. We pray, Father, for your divine hand to heal him and also guiding the doctors with your wisdom to do their best as well. And we pray for his salvation, that he may come to know Christ as Lord and Savior. And for others, Lord, in our a church community, we pray for your healing hand upon them. Lord, we pray for our nation. We ask that you would bless uh, President Trump. We ask also that you would guide the proceedings right now for the new Supreme Court justice. And Lord, may the truth be found out. And we pray for your guidance and your wisdom upon the deliberations uh, with Brett Kavanaugh. Thank you, Father, for this time. Guide us as we think and reflect and apply your word to our lives. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the place where we're at at the story right now is chapter 4, and we're going to be talking about the Exodus and also God's deliverance of his people, who will then become the nation of Israel. And this chapter is really important because when we talk about deliverance, when we talk about the Exodus, it's probably one of the most watershed events that's foundational for Jewish life and then later on for the Christian life. Because All of us as Christians trace our spiritual roots back to Judaism and back to Moses and Abraham. If there's three main things that Jewish communities base their orthodox faith on, it's Abraham, our father Abraham, then there's the Exodus or the Deliverance, and then there's the Ten Commandments, the Law of Moses. And we're going to be talking about that middle factor, the Exodus, today. So I wanted to share with you a real quick a uh, true account of this thing called dove hunting. So a high-powered Chicago attorney went to Texas to dove hunt. He shot a dove, and it fell over behind a fence. The attorney climbed the fence and saw his dove. He also saw a rough Texas farmer 
on his tractor. The farmer asked, what are you doing here? The attorney said, I'm dove hunting and I shot this dove. I've come to get it. The farmer said, you can't do that. This is private property. The attorney puffed out his chest and said, if you don't give me my dove, I'll sue you. The wise old Texan said, well, that's not how we do it down here. How do you do it down here? The attorney asked. We have the Texas three-kick rule. Puzzled, the attorney asked, what's the Texas three-kick rule? The farm explained, I kick you three times, then you kick me three times. We keep doing it until one of us gives up. The smart attorney thought about it and said, okay, let's do the Texas three-kick rule. The rough Texan got off his tractor, wearing big, heavy cowboy boots. I'll start, he said. He kicked the attorney in the leg, and the attorney felt sharp, searing pain, but he stayed up. The farmer kicked him again, and the attorney doubled over and fell to the dirt in agony. Then the farmer kicked him a third time, and the attorney started seeing stars. The attorney staggered to his feet and squeaked out, now it's my turn. The Texas farmer said, nah, I give up. You can have your dove. (laughs) Now, sometimes a good swift kick with a cowboy boot moves things along, but problems can't always be solved with a good swift kick. So, for example, in a more serious nature, in what we're talking about right now, the number one barrier between God and us is the sin nature. Cowboy boots won't help. We can't just kick the sin nature away. We need help. And at this part of the story, it continues with how God removes that sin barrier back thousands of years ago, and it foreshadows something that happens 2,000 years ago that applies to us in our life today. So today the story opens with God's new nation needing deliverance. So last time we talked about Joseph from slave to deputy pharaoh. And today we'll be talking about the deliverance of the Hebrew people. And right from the get-go, the first thing that we see is God's new nation is in danger of annihilation in Egypt. We see this immediately in Exodus chapter 1. God's new nation is in danger of annihilation in Egypt. And here's the background. A few generations after Joseph's passing, there was a new pharaoh who did not know Joseph, who came to power and enslaved the Hebrews for 400 years. Now, a lot of historians read this, and they wonder, how is this possible? How is it possible that we have Joseph, who is the second in command of Egypt, next to the current pharaoh or the previous pharaoh back then? And all of these Jewish people, Hebrew people, how is it possible that this new pharaoh would not know anything about him and the deeds that he did for the Egyptian empire? Well, the reason why is because around that time, there was this new dynasty that entered in to Egypt called the Hyksos dynasty. Now, here's the controversy. Not all historians agree and not all archaeologists agree when the Hyksos dynasty came in. Some will say that the Hyksos dynasty came in before Joseph. And so Joseph assumed the role of an Egyptian Hyksos dynastic secondary ruler. And then when the native Egyptians finally didn't like what the Hyksos were doing and rose up against them a few generations later, they saw the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, as allied with their enemies, and so they then, the new pharaohs, enslaved them. So, yes, he didn't know who Joseph 
and his people were, meaning that they didn't like them. Others will say that the Hyksos dynasty came later. And so this generation, this new generation of Hyksos Egyptians comes in and then takes over uh, the ruling party, which Joseph was, used to be part of. And now, again, they see Joseph or the descendants of Joseph and the Hebrew people as the enemy, and so they enslave them. All right. Regardless, the new pharaoh was intimidated by the new Hebrew nation and feared a takeover because there's millions of them. So he ordered the death of all newborn Hebrew boys. So he decides to do some, some state-sanctioned uh, um, population control by only having the daughters and not having the boys. And that was a really cold, logical move because then the daughters would have to now marry into these Egyptians and you would, after a few generations, wipe out all of these Hebrews. Now, this does foreshadow the 10th plague. A lot of times when we go through the story of the Exodus, we get to the 10th plague and we go, wow, God is a meanie. God is evil. How, how could a good God kill all of these firstborn sons of Egypt? Well, God actually wasn't the first one to do it. Pharaoh was the first one to do it. Here, he actually commands the death of all the sons of the Hebrews who were now their slaves. And so God was just coming back with divine justice. We have to see everything in light of what happened before. The first people to kill the, these sons were not God. It was these, these new Egyptians, the Pharaoh, who did it. And we see that in Exodus chapter 1, verse 15 to 16. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Pua, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. So a couple of questions arise when we talk about the story of the deliverance and the exodus at this point. First, did these 400 years of slavery take God by surprise? Right? That's a legitimate question that arises from people that wonder, didn't God know? Well, no, it did not take God by surprise. God had already revealed to Abraham that this would happen. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 12 to 14, we see God talking to Abraham. Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. So hundreds of years before... God had already revealed to Abraham that this would happen. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. So there will be a reason, a benefit of this happening. Another question that people have is this. Since God predicted the slavery, did God cause the slavery? And the answer is no. The slavery resulted from the fear and the sin nature of the Egyptian people. Also, there's a big difference between God's foreknowledge of human free will and causation of human action. So just because God foreknows what's going to happen doesn't mean that he caused it to happen. What we do know is God foreknew what would happen, and so he used it in order to not only glorify himself, but use it as an opportunity to right that wrong. He used the oppressive sinfulness of the Egyptians as an opportunity to reveal himself and right the wrong that was done. So the second thing that we see 
here in this story of Exodus, in the story of deliverance, the story of the Passover, is God reveals himself in three ways in the deliverance of his people. So what are the three ways? Well, God reveals his name, God reveals his power, and God reveals his plan. I I feel like I sound like a, a preacher or pastor or something. Well, there are three things that God has revealed here, his name, his power, his plan. Typical preacher, right? But God does reveal these things, his name, his power, and his plan. So first, God reveals his name. And this name is the most unique name, personal name, that God has ever, any God has ever revealed himself as. And he reveals his name as I am that I am to Moses. What kind of name is that? <laughs> What's your name? Well, my name is Peter. What's your name? Right? My name is Kailan. What's your name? Right? My name is Janice. What's, what's your name? I am that I am. Right? What, what, kind of, what kind of name is this? Right? See, a lot of times when we think of God's name, like do not take the Lord's name in vain. Right? We often think, okay, so don't say God in, in vain. And, and it's, it's a good thing not to say the name God in a very impolite way. Um, but God's not his name. Right? It's like if I, if I said, don't say uh, the name of the, of the president in vain, right? President is not his name, right? President is the title. God is the title. What's his, his name? And it, again, it's a very unique name. Because when you compare it with the Egyptian gods, it's very unique. Ra is the sun god, right? We have in other pantheons, Zeus, who is the god of lightning and the father of all the Olympian aggression gods. But when we, when we talk about the God of the Hebrews, he is just, I am that I am. And when we look at what is I am that I am, that is the meaning of the YHWH that we see as his personal name. What we, in English, phonetically say Yahweh. Yahweh doesn't mean the God who created the whole world. It doesn't mean the God of the land of Israel. It doesn't even mean the God of love. Although he is all those things, Yahweh is literally I am. This is what it means to be. I am that I am. And this is what makes our God, the God of the Bible, the God of the Hebrew people, not only greater than all other gods, but a God in a completely different league of his own. Because there is no being that is just who he is other than God, meaning that he is not contingent upon anything to exist. He exists just by himself. You see, back then, the gods didn't create the universe. The universe created the gods. The gods became personified as elements of the universe. So, for example, some of us like to watch Avengers, Infinity War, right? So you have Thor, the god of thunder. Did Thor have a dad, or did he create the world? No, Thor had a dad. His dad's name was Odin, the god, the all-father of, of all of the Norse gods, right? But did Odin have a dad? Yes, Odin had a dad. His name was Bor. Did Bor have a dad? And it keeps going back to the universe, which then created these gods. But there's only, but there's, no one had ever thought that there's a god that created everything else and existed by himself. So he's not contingent or dependent or supported by anyone else. He just is 
and he is the one that created everything in the world, that everything is contingent upon him. And this is very important because when you read Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, a lot of times we try to read it scientifically, right? The theory of evolution. How does that relate with Genesis chapter 1? I don't think Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was thinking about the, the modern theory of Darwinian evolution when he wrote Genesis chapter 1. That was not even heard of. That wouldn't come until thousands of years later. But here's what Moses was thinking of. This is the Egyptian cosmology that we came out of. And now God is telling us this is the true cosmology. And what do we see? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God was the one who said, let there be light. And it wasn't until a couple of days later that God created the physical light in the skies, the sun. So here you have the Egyptian sun god, Ra, who was not in the beginning, but who is a creation that came a couple of days later. What a little God compared to the God of the heavens, compared to the great I am. This is what the theologians call the aseity of God. He is so unique that he is of a completely different league than any other God that has been known, any other God that has been created by man. He is the I am, the great I am. I am that I am. And this would be the God that would introduce himself to Pharaoh, who was supposedly a son of God and the intermediary between the Egyptian gods and man. So God, this God, chooses Moses to lead the deliverance. And so we all know the burning bush incident. That was God's initiatory uh, time when he chose Moses to be able to lead his people from the Egypt to the promised land. Moses felt disqualified, if you remember the story. So God equipped him. God said, I'll be with you. The Holy Spirit was with him. You are afraid of, of speaking badly because you feel that you don't have great oral skill. Well, Aaron, your big brother, will be there to speak on your behalf. I will speak through him as well. But, and if you still don't feel up to the task, I'm going to give you a staff of power so that you can do great miracles through it with, under my name. And so with all of this equipping that God has given him, Moses and Aaron, he goes and gives them the task of confronting Pharaoh with God's demand to let my people go. Then we see that God reveals his power. And what a stunning and remarkable and awesome and scary revelation of his, of his power that it was. God reveals his power in the ten plagues against the gods of Egypt. And we see this from Exodus chapter 7 to 13. Now, in Moses' time, there were no atheists. It wasn't like you have people walking around saying, I'm a free thinker. I don't believe that there's any God. Show me through test tube and beaker that God exists. And if I see God, then I will believe in him. No, for them, there's Pharaoh. He's like a God, right? He's a lower, lowercase G, God. So we all believe in, in either invisible or visible gods, what was unique was the idea that there's only one God, not that there was many gods. But in Moses' time, there were no atheists. People believed in gods. Here's the key question, though, and you see this throughout the Old Testament. And today you also see this, but uh, less often. The key question was, who is the most powerful God? 
Because if you can show me that your God is more powerful than my God, then your God's greater, your God's better, and I will then consider seriously to believe in your God. But if my God is more powerful than yours, then why should I convert to your religion? Because, hey, my God's more powerful, right? Now, some people don't understand the, the sociology and the psychology that's going around here, and we have to realize that in the Egyptian culture at that time, there was a major cultural dyad called power and fear. Okay, these cultural dyads control what we feel is right and wrong about certain things that happen in life. So in our American culture, we have the cultural dyad of innocence and guilt. And most Western civilization has that dyad. What is right? You're right if you're innocent. You're wrong if you are guilty of whatever crime that's going on. So right now, we have the confirmation for the Supreme Court justice. If he is found with great evidence... Uh, to have committed that rape, then of course he is guilty and then he's probably not going to be confirmed as Justice of the Supreme Court. But if he's found to be innocent, he probably will, right? And so you have innocence and guilt. And in our Western civilization, the power of innocence, of being innocent is, is so strong and the power of being guilty also is so strong that no amount of honor that you have gained until that point can save you from being guilty. So you can be such a great person. Everyone loves you, but you did some kind of sexual immorality in the past. Well, that destroys all of your honor points, and you cannot have that position anymore. That is the power of innocence and guilt. Then you have the cultural dyad of a lot of Asian cultures and Middle Eastern cultures, honor and shame. Have you ever heard of honor killings? Right? How to us, it may not have been a, that great of a guilty crime, but because it destroyed that family's honor, they feel the right to then go and kill that person, right? The diet of honor and shame. And then you have the lesser-known cultural diet of power and fear. If you can show me you have greater power, then you are right, and I will fear you. But if you show me that you have actually lesser power than what I have, then I will not think that you're right and I will not fear you. And in the story of the Exodus and the Ten Plagues, we see that cultural diet at play. It's about power and fear. All of these plagues given in Egypt, do the Egyptian gods have the power and the ability to negate these plagues that the God of the Hebrews is giving? And if they don't, then you should believe in the God of the Hebrews and the God of the Hebrews, their views, their theology, their desire to go and worship far away and to leave is vindicated. And we know that there is a power play between God versus the God of the Egyptians here because the Bible says it. Exodus chapter 12, verse 12b says, I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. So we see that the primary purpose of the deliverance was to bring God's people out to the promised land, but a secondary purpose of the deliverance was to judge the Egyptian people for their sins, and specifically to show the Egyptian people that God is God, and the gods of Egypt are false, and they're man-made, and they are not true gods. And 
Boy, did he do that. We have to remember that in the Egyptian pantheon, you had 10 main gods. But when you look at all the gods of Egypt, there were 2,000 gods. And these 10 plagues tortured all of Egypt, so much so that even having 2,000 gods, they could not defeat just one god. Just one god. Now we see God use the plagues to harden Pharaoh's already stubborn heart and to reveal his own mighty power. A lot of people like to criticize God. I know, it's kind of scary to say people criticizing God. Like, that's a scary thing to do. You know, well, it was God who hardened Pharaoh's heart. But if you read the story, Pharaoh's heart was already inclined to be stubborn against Israel. So all God did was use that for his glory and his purposes. So God uses the place to harden Pharaoh's already stubborn heart and to reveal his mighty power against the other gods. And what are these ten plagues, and why is it significant? Well, we have from left to right, top and bottom, the first plague being water turning into blood. And yes, it most likely was blood. It wasn't water turning into a red color. Definitely wasn't water turning into wine, or else I think that they'd be really happy about that. And maybe that, maybe that should be the way it was done. And, oh, yeah, I want to believe in you then because you can turn water into wine. You know, it worked for Jesus, right? Um, water turns into blood. I wonder what type of blood, right? Was it type A, type B? You know, what's the type of blood, uh, sickle cell, you know, infested blood? What, you know, what, what was it? Then you have the plague of millions of frogs, okay? I'm sure that that was scary, but probably what was more scary was the billions and billions of lice that infested the land, right? That is sickly. Then we have flies, all right? It gets worse. Did I tell you the story of how me and three other fellow missionaries were just grossed out by all of these magas that we saw? Have I ever showed, shared with you that story? Raise your hand if you heard that story before. Okay, one person. You know why? Because he's been here the longest so I'm drawing upon the history of my messages back to 2008, probably. But anyways, when I was a summer missionary at White River back in 1995, I was paired up with three other people. And it was one of the funnest times, a very hard time, too, being a missionary there in White River in those conditions. But it was one of the funnest times I ever had uh, as a collegian, um, being a missionary over the summer of 95. Here's the thing is that they didn't really have a good system to throw away trash. Okay, so the trash would accumulate, but then there would be too much trash, right? And so it would fall over, or and and sometimes it would rain, or they would have something called res dogs, okay? Uh, Reservation dogs, meaning dogs that would just run rampantly across the reservation and just tear up the trash so that so that you have to pick it up. And so a lot of times what we did was that we just kept the trash inside, and we just, you know... Uh, uh, knotted it so that you wouldn't be able to smell it. Well, some of these trash bags were clear, so you can see what's inside, right? You know, you would have the standard ones that are white or, or black or yellow, but these were the clear ones. So we had this one bag sitting there, and then we had to wait two or three days before we can throw it out so that when the trash, trash garbage truck comes in to take it. And so one day we were in the morning, we were just eating, and, we, and then we look at the trash bag and we see movement. And we're like, what? What? Trash bags aren't supposed to move, right? And so me and Kenrick, 
we go up to the trash bag, and then all of a sudden, we were immediately grossed out. Like, we felt like we had to go to the bathroom and throw up because what we saw were all these little white worm-like things inching up to try to get to the oxygen hole point of the top. And there were literally hundreds of those things going up all at the same time. And they were, they were making trails of like white liquid going up. It was like the most grossest thing that we have ever seen. How many of you are grossed out right now? Okay, only a few of you. My story failed. All right. But, and, and we're like, throw this thing away. So none of us wanted to do it because if we touched it, there would be a chance that it would plop out. So we, we put on gloves, took that, you know, tippy-toed out, threw it, and then the garbage can, garbage uh, uh, truck came and took it away. But after that, we decided, you know what, we're not going to use um, clear, clear-lined uh, trash bags anymore. Get the, the standard white ones or the black ones. <laughs> The plague of flies. Okay? Then we have the fifth plague, sick cattle, then boils. Okay? Then we have fire and hail, the plague of locusts, then darkness. You know, a lot of people think that these plagues are, are, are bad, but actually darkness, I think, is the worst because literally no light. It would, and literally, it doesn't mean that they couldn't use fire anymore. I think there was actually a presence of darkness where it didn't matter what they did, but there was just, you couldn't see. It was as if everyone was blind, blinded, even though they weren't, okay? Then, I, I like the artist here. He, I think he took inspiration from Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, where at the end, you see Harrison Ford going, Miriam, Miriam, close your eyes, don't look, don't look. And all the Nazis look, and then these these like the energy beams comes out and they, they become like beautiful angels and then they become like demonic spirits and kills all of the Nazis, right? Um, well, you have the death of the firstborn. It was hearkening to the tenth plague there. And we see here's the meaning behind the ten plagues of Egypt. What you notice is that God did not choose the plagues randomly. Each of the plagues related to a certain Egyptian god who had authority and power to give these plagues as well or to take them away. So, for example, water turning into blood. Well, you have Kanum, who is the guardian of the river source. You have Hapi, who is the spirit of the Nile. And you have Osiris. The Nile River was his bloodstream. And so these gods, if they were that powerful, could turn back the blood into regular water. They couldn't. All of the, the priests of Egypt could do was replicate water turning into blood, but they couldn't turn it back. And we see this happening nine times, from water to blood, frogs, lice, flies, all the way down to darkness. If these gods were so powerful and these gods represented that calamity, they could turn it back to normal, but they didn't. And it was to show that God had power over the gods of Egypt. And then you have the death of the firstborn. God has power over your life. And we see that the tenth plague not only reveals God's power, but also points to that last 
of three things that God reveals, his plan. God reveals his plan in the 10th plague, which required the shedding of the lamb's blood. And this is a central clue to the main purpose of God's story, the central clue to the main purpose of the Bible from beginning all the way to the end, from Genesis to Revelations. And read, read this in Exodus 12, in the story of the Passover and the 10th plague. Now I'm just going to read through the story. It's not all 42 verses. I've abridged it uh, so that we get the main points. But I want you to know the main points of why the Passover is so important to Judaism and why the Passover is so important now to Christianity and why it points to Jesus. While the Israelites were still in the land of Egypt, the Lord gave the following instructions to Moses and Aaron. From now on, this month will be the first month of the year for you. Announce to the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each family must choose a lamb or a young goat for a sacrifice, one animal for each household. If a family is too small to eat a whole animal, let them share with another family in the neighborhood. Divide the animal according to the size of each family and how much they can eat. The animal you select must be a one-year-old male, either a sheep or a goat, with no defects. Take special care of this chosen animal until the evening of the 14th day of the first month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel must slaughter their lamb or young goat at twilight. They are to take some of the blood and smear it on the sides and on the top of the door frames of the houses where they eat the animal. So they are to take some of the blood and smear it on the sides and on the top of the door frames of the houses where they eat the animal. These are your instructions for eating this meal. Be fully dressed, wear your sandals, and carry your walking stick in your hand. Eat the meal with urgency, for this is the Lord's Passover. On that night, I will pass through the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn son and firstborn male animal in the land of Egypt. I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt, for I am the Lord. And whenever it has uh, the capital L-O-R-D, that's I am. That's Yahweh. Okay, so when you read your Bibles and sometimes there's capital L and then lowercase O-R-D, that's not Yahweh. Okay, but wherever it says capital L-O-R-D, that's his personal name. It's Yahweh. You, you have no doubt that this is the God of the Bible. This is the God who created the universe. This is the great I am. This is the God of the Israelites. Um, verse 13. But the blood on your doorposts will serve as a sign, marking the houses where you are staying. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. This plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. So they, again, they marked up and down, left and right. And when God sees the blood, that sign of the blood, he will not touch them with death, but he will pass over them. This is a day to remember each year from generation to generation. You must celebrate it as a special festival to the Lord. This is a law for all time. Celebrate this festival of unleavened bread, for it will remind you that I brought your forces out of the land of Egypt on this very day. This festival will be a permanent law for you. Celebrate this day from generation to generation. Okay, and then Moses then relays this information to everyone else. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel together and said to them, go, pick up a lamb or a young goat for each of your families and slaughter the Passover animal. 
Drain the blood into a basin. Then take a bundle of hyssop branches and dip it into the blood. Brush the hyssop across the top and the sides of the doorframe of your houses. And no one may go out through the door until morning. For the Lord will pass through the land to strike down the Egyptians. But when he sees the blood on the top and the sides of the doorframe, the Lord will pass over your home. He will not permit his death angel to enter your house and strike you down. Remember, these instructions are a permanent law that you and your descendants must observe forever. When you enter the land the Lord has promised you, you will continue to observe this ceremony. So, the people of Israel did just as the Lord had commanded through Moses and Aaron. And that night, at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn sons in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne. That's a biggie, right? That Pharaoh, even the, someone as divinely protected as Pharaoh could not escape this judgment in that his son was slain to the firstborn son of the prisoner in the dungeon. Even the firstborn of their livestock were killed. Verse 30, Pharaoh and all his officials and all the people of Egypt woke up during the night and loud wailing was heard throughout the land of Egypt. There was not a single house where someone had not died. Pharaoh sent Moses and Aaron during the night. Get out, he ordered. Leave my people and take the rest of the Israelites with you. Go and worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds, as you said, and be gone. Go, but bless me as you leave. What? (laughs) What is that? (laughs) I'll let you go, but you're going to have to bless me, okay, because don't tell the Egyptian gods, but... I know your God is God, okay? But bless me as you leave. What a, what a coward. Okay, what a cheapskate. All right. Sorry, that's a personal editorial. Verse 33, all the Egyptians urged the people of Israel to get out of the land as, he, as quickly as possible, for they thought, we will all die. They were, I would be scared if I was an Egyptian. It's like, okay, he, he killed our firstborn sons, even our livestock. What's next, right? The Israelites took their bread dough before the yeast was added. They wrapped their kneading boards in their cloaks and carried them on their shoulders. And the people of Israel did as Moses had instructed. They asked the Egyptians for clothing and articles of silver and gold. The Lord caused the Egyptians to look favorably on the Israelites. And they gave the Israelites whatever they asked for. So they stripped the Egyptians of their wealth. That night, the people of Israel left Ramesses and started for Sukkoth. Sukkoth is going eastward towards the promised land. There were about 600,000 men plus all the women and children. A rabble of non-Israelites went with them. So we have Egyptians joining them because they want, they want to be with the true God along with great flocks and herds of livestock. The people of Israel had lived in Egypt for 430 years. In fact, it was on the last day of the 430th year that all the Lord's divisions left the land. On this night, the Lord kept his promise to bring his people out of the land of Egypt. Wow, what an incredible story, full of both God's awesome power, generating a a fear of God, and showing God's grace and God's truthfulness to his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that there would be descendants that would number like the stars and the sands of the seashore, and there would be a place for his people uh, in the promised land. Now, in conclusion, there are two things that I want to talk about. First of all, I want to talk about 
how great God is. We see here that the new Hebrew nation left Egypt by an undeniable demonstration of the power of God. We see this in the plagues. We see this in the crossing of the Red Sea that eventually happened. We see the defeat of the Egyptian army when the Red Sea, the Sea of Reeds closed upon them. And the provision of food and water, manna and water, you remember the story, to the now delivered Hebrew nation. More personally, and if we can hearken back to the story that we talked about in the beginning, this could be a cowboy boot moment for you. We are all in slavery to sin. And the destroyer, death, is coming. We need the blood of a lamb just as the Israelites did. Where will we get it? You see, when the Hebrews put the blood on the doorpost, they were making the sign of the cross. And when the angel of death would come over and he would see the blood, the lamb's blood on the cross, he would pass over it and that he would not kill that family. And the same way we see in the New Testament that Jesus is the Passover lamb for all nations, not just the Hebrew nation, but for all nations that would believe in God through him. John 1.29 says, pointing to Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5.7, For Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. His blood was shed for us so that we would believe in him. We can be saved from God's righteous wrath and know God's love. One of the biggest clues in the story is in the deliverance, in the exodus. The blood of the lamb on the doorpost saved them. Today, Jesus is our Passover lamb who saves us through his blood on the cross. Ask in faith for the blood of Jesus to be put on the doorframe of your soul. The deliverance from sin is free, but you must ask for it. Humble yourself. If you have never asked God to apply the blood of Jesus to your life, you can do so now. Let's pray.